0: Hi, I'm Sarah Grace McCandless, and this is On Brand. One of the things I love about this show is how many different types of conversations I get to have regarding that customer and brand relationship. And one of the things that comes up so often in my conversations with my own clients is the importance of taking a look at the brand through the lens of the consumer, not just the brand through the lens of the brand. This is relevant whether you are an emerging upcoming brand, whether you are an established global brand, And whether you're in that B2B or B2C space, Uh, to really probe into this topic a little further, I brought on a guest today who is truly an expert in this field. His experience is so impressive. He's worked with both B2C and B2B brands. He has been a former uh, leader and executive with brands that are Household and global names like Starbucks and Amazon, also sat on the startup side as a CMO, and he's here today to talk about how do you truly become a customer-centric brand. Ryan Turner, welcome to on Brand. It's great to see you too. I love your background. Uh, Beautiful Bainbridge Island, Washington. Um, Definitely missing that Seattle area and looking to get up there soon. It's great to see you. Um, Thanks so much for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you in particular about this. You know, you've always, you made such an impression on me. We met several years ago and got to work together as partners. And I'd love for you to start uh, by telling my listeners and viewers a little bit about your background. How did you get into this world?
1: Sure, I I started as a uh, as a poet, um, which is less uncommon um, sort of historical background in digital marketers than you might think. Um, I you know I went to graduate school in Montana, uh, did an MFA in poetry writing and an MA in English Lit. Stayed in graduate school as long as I possibly could because it was awesome. Uh, moved to Seattle, got turned down for a job delivering pizza. Um, you know it's like my rock bottom career moment and then um, uh, ended up taking a writing job at the bill and melinda gates foundation which had just uh launched at that point so this is in the mid late 90s uh, got involved with the libraries program which was about closing the digital divide uh, through public access technology in libraries across the us and canada uh, started as a writer there wrote several books meant to help uh, librarians manage technology uh, in libraries and got involved with the internet um, really early on. It was, you know, at the, the point where the internet was sort of nascent and companies were trying to figure out what to do with it. Most viewed it as a uh, broadcast or publishing medium, uh, analogous to other broadcast media. Uh, but the way the way we kind of approached it at the Gates Foundation was to think about it as a way of connecting uh These small public libraries that had very few resources to manage technology, with library systems that had much more much more resources and sophistication, uh, in order to enable them to help each other. And so, my involvement with the internet really early on was uh, was really focused on connecting people and using the internet as a communication medium, uh, as opposed to a broadcast medium. Uh, And and so my work since then is really kind of focused in that area and continued along the, that, that basic trajectory went into consulting uh, working on behind the firewall intranet uh, applications around leadership development and knowledge management uh, from there spent uh, almost a decade on the agency side in wpp and Publicis. first as sort of the online community expert and then online community became web 2.0 to web 2.0 became social media uh, and, you know, sort of followed that progression, uh, over time on the agency side, uh, got the opportunity to work at Starbucks, uh, right. As Starbucks was trying to sort of operationalize its social media, uh, sort of, I mean, I'd hesitate to even call it a team. It was one guy. It was Brad Nelson, right? <laughs> I don't know if you're here, Brad. Hi, Brad. Um, <laughs> Brad, it was Brad Nelson running around with his iPhone, uh, around Starbucks headquarters, trying to figure out what to put on Facebook for the mm. 10 million followers Facebook had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Starbucks at that time was in, in every agency case study, um, as sort of the poster child of really getting it in social media,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but what nobody realized what it was, was that it was just Brad. Um, and Brad's a smart guy with great taste and, uh, the perfect brand. Right. And so yeah the, the amazing thing about working at starbucks and social media is that you say frappuccino and the whole internet goes ape shit. and it just so it just works and there's you know there's polarized responses and you know we can talk about that and about the sort of spectrum of emotional reactions that uh customers have to to starbucks and social uh, but it really was just a matter of showing up yeah. at that time uh and so the project over the over the first few years it was at starbucks really about operationalizing that capability and building a degree of formality into that practice without losing the heart and soul of what made it work in the first place, which was just the emotional resonance of the brand.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, Ryan. You and I have really similar trajectories. You know, this uh, coming from a creative writing poet, poetry, poet and heart backgrounds, exactly. Uh-huh. I didn't myself. know that about you. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. I was a you know, creative writing English major uh-huh. and. Started in poetry and expanded into short stories and novels and screenplays and and I think that oh God, this is a whole other
1: podcast we're going to. I know, that
0: like that's okay. With the yes, and I think, but then I kind of followed a very similar trajectory to you because what well, we we are storytellers, right? So of course there'd be a natural segue to go into writing or marketing where you're kind of building and telling the story of the brand, and I could also very much. Yeah. Relate to you know this segue into the birth of digital because I started more in traditional marketing and was there at the onset um and and really embraced it you know and you're right you know a lot of times that that initial kind of social element it was just one person you know at these large corporations that were really running the ship and Mm -hmm. and i think that that's i definitely want to touch on that when we cut you know because we're thinking about how do you become a customer-centric brand so let's let's talk about social for a minute i mean you know especially since you were helming that for Starbucks, which is a huge global brand, you know, and the work that you did there. Now, when social was born, it was given to marketing. And we did use it to kind of talk at people. And then they started talking back. What was your experience as you started to pull together more of a strategy, a team and resources in that social space? What were some learnings and, and some observations that you had?
1: It's interesting because the, the cliche at the time among um, people working in social media, I'm sure you remember was always start by listening. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the um, you know, what was meant at the time to feel like this drop of like real wisdom, you know, of like, we're going to, we're going to really listen to our customer and the customer is going to guide us in knowing how to connect. Um, And that, and that was great. And it was right. And there was also this sort of dose of cynicism around that, right, of like, oh sure, we're gonna listen to the customer and then we're gonna sell them the thing we need to sell them. Mm -hmm. Um, But that idea of listening was very much just ingrained in social media and how we were approaching it at the time. Um, What I think is interesting is that uh, over time, I think as brands have formalized their, their capabilities and have become more sophisticated in their approach to developing content and distributing it, as paid media has become a more intrinsic part of social, uh, I think we've forgotten that truth a little bit, um, or we've forgotten how to do it really effectively, or we've struggled to scale it. Uh, And so I think the brands who are doing social really well today are the ones who uh, have mastered the art of listening really broadly at scale uh, and listening beyond just what's sort of on trend or trending or what the kind of, uh, you know, dumpster fire of the day is in social media, and here behind that, the cultural trends that are driving attention and interest, uh, and then really understanding how the brand connects with it. And that's sort of the, um, I think what what separates the good from the great is not just understanding how to show up and say pancakes on fleek, uh, as IHOP did in like 2009 to much acclaim, um, but understanding what's true about the brand and about the product or service that's highly relevant to the core truths about the customer, and being able to connect those dots uh, is the true art of listening. That's, um, that's like hard to do.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, and I think um, you know there's a couple of different ways to listen, and diff- different data points and sources that you can pull from. There's the customers you currently have and and what you're hearing from them. There's the customers that you don't quite have yet. What is their opinion of you as they kind of are considering entering a relationship with you? And then there's the ones that you have who are either singing your praises or tearing you down, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You've been more on the marketing side of these types of things. But, you know, one of the things I love about social is how it brings multiple departments and parties together. And it's just shared space, shared real estate. And so you you have different stakeholders that kind of come to the table. I'd love to talk, you know, I think that you did some work really early on where this was very much the exception, considering... All stages of the journey, not just the sales part of it or the you know um, acquisition side. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, do you have any advice for other brands who are still maybe struggling with having that holistic approach to the overall customer experience?
1: Yeah, get it, get along better. I mean, you know, like <laughs> we still like it feels like in 2007 we were having turf wars about whether social media belonged in. Mm -hmm. marketing, PR, customer success. And I think, I think everybody kind of knew it's all that, that every sort of, um, you know, customer facing part of the company had a need to be present in social media or to learn from social media or Mm -hmm. to monitor it or respond to it or uh, be able to communicate through it. And, you know, the, the sort of turf wars that came with that um, were unhelpful. So I think, you know, at Starbucks, we realized pretty early on that we, uh, stood to gain a lot by cooperating really effectively. And one of the things about Starbucks that's unique for such a big company is it thinks and operates like a relatively small company. You know, in the, in the Seattle headquarters, people talk to each other in person uh, every day across huge divisions of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that the those relationships that we had across functions made it much easier for us to sit down and really figure out how to operationalize uh, social, which we had to do relatively quick and quickly, right? Like we we're early on in the, the journey of brands and social, we, were, we had tens of thousands of you know, comments about the brand every day. Uh, and so we had to figure out how to cope with that volume because we never felt ignoring it was an option.
0: Yeah, well, and I think that that's, again, really ahead of your game, ahead of, ahead of your time, and really probably one of the many reasons Starbucks has looked at as a kind of a best-in-class example you know, really early out of the gate there too. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about, so Starbucks is this global brand. I've been to Starbucks all over the US. I've been to Starbucks in the Philippines. Um, and I was I had a recent conversation, an interview with Amy LeClaire, who helped really build the Bar 3 brand and grow it to 160 franchises worldwide. and is now doing the same with a new emerging brand called Sit Still Kids. So we were just talking about that. What I'm curious how that played into so, you know, your strategy and work for Starbucks when you have again these in real life experiences in all different areas and regions. How are you? How does that influence kind of how you design that social experience too? Was any of the feedback that you were getting during those years very regionally specific? Yeah. And what was, yeah, what was your yeah. experience? Well,
1: it's funny you would mentioned the Philippines because there's, mm-hmm. there's a great story of sort of the, the early questions we had about the impact of social media on retail specifically. Uh, it was never easy for us to measure uh, the impact of things we did, you know, on Instagram, in yeah. our retail stores, uh, let alone to do it globally and across different markets and across. Dozens of different social media channels, some operated globally and some operated regionally. We worked in a, a hub and spokes model. The, the central Seattle team had more resources, more ability to produce content and assets than the regions did, pretty common sort of setup. And so we got better over time at anticipating the needs of regions through different promotional windows and developing content assets that were reusable globally. So that that was a little bit of a journey for us to develop the communication pathways early enough in the process and syncing the slightly different calendars globally to be able to use the resources we had in the in the global team to help support the regions. But one of the but one of the things we we saw early on uh, in the Philippines specifically was that stuff we put out, like you know, in this case specifically on Instagram, actually drove. Uh, impact in retail. And we saw that through a post we did uh, about the cotton candy frappuccino, which was a thing that we never wanted to say uh, out loud, right? Because cotton candy frappuccino was part of the Starbucks secret menu, Mm -hmm. which was this sort of powerful underground device among Starbucks fans that we never wanted to spoil by acknowledging it too directly. Like It wasn't an official thing, but we did want to wink to it because it was such a resonant uh expression of customer engagement with the brand. Mm-hmm. And so we put a picture out of just the cotton candy Frappuccino. And I think we, I don't remember exactly, I think we may have put a cotton candy emoji in the the text or something like that. And what we saw in the following couple of weeks was that in the Philippines, the stores were overwhelmed with orders for cotton candy Frappuccino to the extent that they ran out of some of the ingredients. Uh mm-hmm. and it created this giant headache for the supply chain. Uh, in the Philippines so we sort of got in trouble for it Um, you know and this was this was good trouble right because we were (laughs) driving this impact in retail the retail people were pissed at us and we were like yay it works Um, but what it enabled us to do uh, from from there on was to start to plan for those impacts and even in some cases to address surpluses in the supply chain with social media posts when we saw that we had too much raspberry syrup in the supply chain we could do a thing about cotton candy frappuccino and actually see a measurable impact uh, wow. to the supply chain uh, through those posts. And so, you know, there, there, there was more rigor and discipline to it than that. Um, but the fact that we could actually do stuff online and see an impact in another part of the world uh, that enabled us over time to more intelligently address supply chain issues and start to integrate the retail operation mm-hmm. with the way we were marketing uh, online specifically was really powerful.
0: That is such a fantastic example. And it goes back to what you said earlier about we all need to get along better, you know, and you're right, because all boats rise here. I mean, there was a time where it was just, hey, look at our cool marketing campaign. Look at our uh, really, you know, kind of glossy, wonderful photography that we've done and our pithy copy. And it's fantastic. And we're not thinking about the reverb, right, of of how that can, you know, kind of play out. But I love what you said, too, about the reverse of that. So, okay, we've got some more to kind of work through and get through in terms of inventory of raspberry syrup or whatnot. Let's actually intentionally proactively get out there and see that kind of cause and effect. Um, It also made me think too, you know, there has been some new, products or uh, drinks that were introduced this season that were oat milk based and i'm a big oat milk person and then there was an oat milk shortage you know Mm -hmm. that was there too so Mm -hmm. um you know i think you know this last year um we're also seeing a little bit more of that um you know supply chain impact right because of the pandemic and the way that things just totally you know came to a screeching halt and then it was like how do you restart you know, as you think through um, the customer centric focus for a brand, you know, just generally, whether it's an observation from m- maybe something from your time at Starbucks, how that would have played out or more more recent endeavors. What are your takeaways so far from the impact of this last year? Is it more or less important to be customer centric?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think um, I don't know if it's more or less important. I think I think it's it continues to be important. And the brands that have been able to thrive, partly they're just, you know, what business you're in uh, makes a big difference. But I think part of what we've seen specifically in uh, online retail has been the businesses that are able to accelerate their decision speed and adapt more quickly are the ones who have been able to, um, you know, I don't want to say capitalize on the situation in such a, a crummy situation, but who've been able to continue to thrive in a more challenging environment. Uh, And in some cases where they are listening really well to the customer and understanding how the customer context is changing or needs are changing uh, or behaviors are changing, uh, the ones who've been able to operationalize that awareness the fastest uh, and to make low impact decisions more quickly, low risk decisions more quickly based on incomplete data uh, are the ones that have been able to be really successful in the rapidly changing environment. And I think that, I I think that's a new normal. I think that's a new condition for business, that speed of decision-making and the ability to, uh, use data to guide decisions without relying on so much rigor that it slows the process down, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, balancing degree of certainty with impact of the risk, uh, are the ones that are doing well.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that those are, you know, some of this was already in play, let's say before, you know, that, that kind of Train had left the station, it's, especially when I think about customer experience being the key differentiator above price and product. We saw that coming for several years. It was 2020 was sort of noted as this will be the official tipping point kind of across all industries. Then 2020 became a whole other ballgame on top of that. I feel like it just threw some accelerant on that and that it's not going to disappear. It'll stay here, too. I, you know, you mentioned the secret menu with uh, with with Starbucks, too, and you know, um I love that story and how that's kind of become something that is a wink, um as you put it. It got me thinking about personalization. Um how do you think that plays again, when you're you've got all these different data points? Personalization can take a little time, can take a little thought. You know, I've got teams out there who, before they reply, they're really kind of making sure they have the right context for the customer they're engaging with, the pop culture reference, their history with the brand. How do you how do you manage personalization um, and that customer centric pursuit? Well,
1: it's, it's such an interesting question because we you know every, everybody has talked a lot about the impact of the pandemic mm-hmm. on marketing, in a way that's almost overshadowed the other huge change in marketing over the last year, which is. The rise of privacy, and so you know, really, it's been sort of a like a slow build, but we've seen this confluence of increased regulation over privacy in the EU and California that's going to you know continue to spread. Uh, The ability for users to control their data, in particularly in the new iOS, uh, with those controls, and the the you know increasing opacity of walled garden systems, and so marketers who've relied on targeting and behavioral data to drive results uh, are suddenly finding themselves with way less ability to uh, push buttons and pull levers intelligently. And so this this is a huge challenge that for me is as big a deal as behavioral change driven by the pandemic that's impacting how marketers are, are showing up. The good news, I think, is that where all that you know, like the last ten years' trajectory in digital marketing has given us the ability to understand customers based on behavioral data. Part of what's happened is that we've lost the sense of humanity and uh, the customer as a person. The customers become a an aggregate or a generalization or a category uh, mm-hmm. that we're able to um, you know sort of drive behavior within using using data, um, and we we've, we've become a little bit transactional um, in that way, and we've undervalued the role of great emotional creative marketing uh, in connecting with customers. But I think this challenge that we're facing in the the decreasing availability of data is forcing us to think harder about the creative again. And the creative is becoming less, um, you know, really, really quickly becoming less another lever to pull in the media buying process. And it's becoming the heart of the marketing activity, which is, why most of us got into it in the first place, right? It's mm-hmm. Because we're communicators on some level and we either are, want to be part of the creative process or want to be adjacent to it. Um, and so I think we, we sort of know that the creative is important but it's becoming newly important um, in, a, in, a, in a powerful way that really reflects um, you know, what's been true all along which is great communication wins.
0: Yeah, great point. And I think that that kind of also, you know, ladders up with, you know, this um, increasing focus on who a brand is, who they are as an organization, their leadership, really culture, not just what they put on their website, right, but how they show up in the world. In addition to, you know, again, what they make and what they sell it for and how they support you if you have a, you know, customer service need, I'd love to kind of segue into that and talk a little bit about that social good bucket. You know, one of the things that we overlay in the show and I like to lean into whenever it lends itself organically in the conversation is that secondary angle of putting purpose at the forefront of leadership culture and customer experience. I do think that, again, that is something that has been increasing well before 2020, and and it's even more um, important now. We make our decisions based on how these companies show up. We want to see that human side. We want to feel heard and listened to. How does that play into social good um, for an organization? Where does that fall based on your experience? What would your recommendation be? as brands consider how to, you know, show up in that social good space? What does that mean to you?
1: It's a really interesting question. I think I think it's so challenging for brands right now because mm-hmm. there's been, you know, the last few years we've seen that consumers really care about um, what the companies they make purchases from stand for and what right. their practices are and what their impact is. And the, the idea of voting your dollars has become more real uh, over time for more consumers. And so it's never been more important for companies to communicate their values, what they stand for, and how their practices support the social issues they want to connect with. And we've never seen more cynicism uh, in, a, in, the, in the US, at least. I'm, I'm not as sure globally, but I think in the US, our uh, level of cynicism is the highest it's ever been. And so as soon as brands make a claim uh, to be doing something virtuous, um, the, rea- the reaction is skepticism or just outright hatred and denial, uh, and so brands are in this bind where um, they they know they need to, and and probably in their heart of hearts really want to stand for uh, social good, and as soon as they lay claim to uh, to what they're doing, they receive backlash for it. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. Um, I think the the reality is that you can't get out of it, um, and the. I don't know like you asked for advice that's a hard one to give advice on um but from what i've seen brands that tell the truth are rewarded for telling the truth um more than brands who sugarcoat realities are are um like sort of avoiding punishment for them um, and so so the i think the um the brands who do really well um i think of patagonia um i think uh of like has sort of a, a natural ability because social impact is so intrinsic to their business. Um carry good lessons for other companies. And Starbucks is one that, you know, I think I think over the time I was there, we had a mixed record in in some of what we did. But the thing that that we saw over and over was that the closer our social impact agenda was to our business practices, and the more we were able to enact our values and the way we went to market and the way we ran and operated the company. Um, the the more impact we generated and the better received it was and so for example with starbucks hiring practices are an area that um where, where starbucks can make a huge impact because we hire a lot of people at starbucks we have a huge retail operation and um and so targeting specific groups to hire like veterans military spouses uh, opportunity youth uh, et cetera, uh, generates a positive impact on society that's very close and intrinsic to the operation of the business and is great for the business, and so where we saw that alignment between business benefit and social impact, uh, we saw great results. And I think the part of the genius of Howard Schultz was that he understood that really well and always focused social impact on also making the business succeed, uh, not because um, you know he was he was at heart a ruthless capitalist. Maybe he is, I don't know, in that well, but. Um, uh, because he understood that the real impact of a Starbucks is the the scale uh, that Starbucks has and the right. ability to uh, drive an impact across many many communities simply by adop- adopting really um, really simple business practices from hiring to uh, sourcing t- to how we think about waste, uh, etc.
0: You know, you kind of read my mind on that when I was thinking about you know I did work with Starbucks and also brands like Nike who have a a big voice out there. Do you think that brands who have that type of audience have a responsibility to leverage, you know, their social platforms um, to, for the greater good. Um, And what happens when that greater good may not have, you know, please everyone we're seeing, values from brands. And sometimes it's playing out in a way that's for better or worse being perceived as more, or it's very overtly political or being perceived as political. But even with that aside, do you think that these, these bigger brands that you have so much experience with personally have a responsibility to, to take their platforms and, and, you know, put it to something beyond their own marketing purposes?
1: I absolutely believe that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't think the role of a corporation is to generate shareholder value only, right. um, and to and to make money. I mean, you can look at it from sort of a pure capitalist point of view and say there's you know trickle down good embedded in that activity. Uh, I personally just don't believe that. I be- I believe that if you if you have an impact on the world, you've got to be uh, thoughtful, ethical, uh, and deliberate about what that impact is. Uh, and stand for more than simply simply making money. I just, I just don't think we live in a world where pure capitalism um, is justifiable.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. And I think it kind of ties it back to yeah. uh, you what know, I was talking about at the beginning, about this relationship between customer and brand. It's a very um, emotional one and a personal one. And I think that they want to see customers now, again, want to see that human side, even if it's going to alienate a certain sector. Um, being more clear on who, what your values are as a company, and then backing it up with the action too, you know, in that social good space, I think we see a lot of flexing that is an empty gesture, right? Um What I love about your experience, I mean, you started with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and then you went on to work with these, again, very huge global brands. You have the agency side too. You've really seen it from all angles, but you've got that kind of philanthropy at the core, at the root of everything that you're doing too. And that's where we are now is where is that mindfulness with brands? Um, I love this conversation, Ryan. I'd love for you to, as we kind of wrap things up, you know, as you think about sort of like what's next on some of these touch points, is there anything, you know, when we're thinking about truly becoming a customer centric brand that we haven't touched on um, that you would recommend people really kind of keep in mind as they plan that pathway?
1: Oh, I think it's I think the thing that uh, can get overlooked, um, you know, or drowned out by the truism of know the customer is, mm-hmm. is knowing yourself. Right, and so if if you think about sort of the classic strategic pyramid of like the the customer truth, the marketplace truth, and the brand or product truth, um, don't let don't let any of those drown out the others. You've got to kind of continue to find that like I've seen it drawn as a Venn diagram of like that Mm -hmm. sweet spot um, uh, between uh, those three pillars. And when you when you um, when you make decisions about what truths to pay attention to you've got to be really smart about which ones actually matter because many things are true. Um, and in any given you know, campaign or program or initiative, uh, there's a handful, of, a small handful of truths that matter much more than the others. And distilling all the available information down to those core singular truths uh, about the customer, about you, about your competitors or the environment um, is a real art. So. Um, I think where, I think, I think it's interesting to, you know, the way marketing operations work today and that we've gone from spending the bulk of our energy in the planning process, uh, and creative production, uh, and then sort of launched it and hope for the best to, uh, you know, marketing operations really focused on downstream execution, uh, and iterative development, um, that we've lost some of that focus, some of the sense of high stakes in the planning process. Uh, that I think we would do well to restore uh, and really spend the time to understand the customer really well and to uh, do that without overlooking you know, what's just true about you. Think about the people who are really great to be around. It's the people who have the combination of um, genuine interest in others and empathy for others yeah. and a sense of confidence and clarity about who they are uh, and how they show up. Those are the people you want to be around, and it's the same with brands.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. And as somebody who, you know, identifies as an empath at the core. And I can think back in the day, I used to be kind of be told that that, you know, that's not gonna serve you. And and that you can't really have be a leader as an empath. And and now I would actually say I think it's the opposite. I think it's critical. I love what you said too about it being a true um true art. I think you're right. It's a great thing to leave um others thinking about too. I think that's one of the reasons you're so good at what you do, Ryan, because you are an artist at heart, you know, you're, a writer. yeah, no, really. I mean, I, cause you're very genuine. And I think I can almost hear you kind of crafting this poem as you're talking about it so thoughtfully, all of the different pieces that go into it too. So it's kind of no wonder. Poetry is yeah. about
1: compression. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, you understand, you know, yeah. it's, it's the attention to every sound every syllable and, and the ability to really focus and hear the music and the language. And I think yeah. it's the same with uh, social media and with digital in some ways. It's that like every, every little bit counts. And so having that um, inclination to sort of pay attention to the detail and mm-hmm. to try to really consolidate communications into powerful um, and you know uncliched uh, bite-sized pieces uh, helps enable good communication online. That's Absolutely. why you see some poets in in digital, I think.
0: I couldn't agree more. I'm always very grateful for having that at the heart of my heart. And one of my favorite, um, she's a poet, but she uh, writes short stories and novels, Margaret Atwood, Um, is, you know, she says that one of her quotes I have framed downstairs in my house says, in the end, we all become stories. And I think that that's that's very true. And like when we're having this conversation, you know, these brands, these companies, these moments, these engagements, they are all stories that make up our experiences too. But a lot of it having to do with what your customer says about you, not just what you say about you as well. So Ryan, thank you so much uh, for your time and your expertise. It's so great to catch up with you. Really appreciate your insights and look forward to seeing what's next for you as well.
1: Thank you.